Black Cats Run Podcast. I'm Tristan Black Ingersoll, and this is Black Cats Run. How do you decide if your training is working? How do you know if you need to change your training? When you change your training, do you change one or two items? Or do you look to change the entire approach and form? I would argue that when we think about training, we need to look at it as a comprehensive, holistic approach. But oftentimes, we're trapped in a system of symbolic meaning. How can these systems of symbols have a significant impact on the decisions and the strategies we use to prepare fitness and competition? Well, let's get into today's episode. Perspective. What we know is what is real to us. It can seem like training is either an act of faith or it's this kind of validated empirical practice and that you move up the food chain to the higher performing athletes and you seem to see uh, more polarization in that sort of thought process that there seems to be more insistence that the practice is validated or you tend to see more focus on training as an act of faith Or in some instances, you sort of see both, that there's sort of like, that the validation as practice is the confidence, that confidence somehow becomes like a empirical, um, almost scientific-esque type way to think about and consider their training. No, I don't mean uh, as an act of faith, I don't mean, uh, you know, an axial religion, I don't mean... Christian faith or the faith of any religious system. This is not a religious concept of faith. What I mean is the idea simply that um, we believe in the value of what we're doing for training because of what the culturally ascribed value of that particular thing is. So if you go out and you do active recovery, I think is a good example of this, but there's lots of good examples. I mean, I think basically all aspects of training can have a sort of faith-based, uh, va- you know, thought process to them. But you take active recovery, you know, most people don't understand or have a concept of what that is. And I have a whole episode um, called Recovery Isn't Real, which you're you know, welcome to check out if you want to hear about some thoughts on recovery. So I don't, and I don't want to like re-explore that whole thing right here, obviously. But looking at that and saying, okay, well, I now know based on, you know, nothing essentially beyond, you know, this sort of culturally ascribed, this is a thing that we do and therefore it is valuable, right? That the value is that it has value, um, cultural value, and you don't understand the mechanism. Well, that's an act of faith. 
So, you know, you could also think about this in terms of the scale of what is the return on a single session of training? And I think people often assign a very disproportionate scale of return based on the identity of the session. And that's also an act of faith, you know, believing that something is producing, providing something that you have no evidence to support that perspective. And when we do assign um, responsibility to training retroactively, right, because you have faith in your training going forward, um, that you say, okay, I'm going to do these things and it's going to produce this result. And you don't know why those things should produce that result, but there's this sort of this idea of like, don't question it. And I think that it's sort of weird how faith in this sense uh, becomes like an athletic virtue of, you know, the good athlete doesn't question anything. Um, senior on a cross-country team in college when I was a freshman told me that just do everything uh, the coach says and, you know, everything will be great for you. And, you know, that was, I mean, basically totally inaccurate. Um, but that would be an act of faith, right? That there was no, this is why you should do this or anything like that. And, you know, I think as an act of faith, if, you know, I, I did, it's just not that simple, right? To say that I either did or didn't do everything the coach said, because what happens when you get to the point where the coach says do X, but you're not physically capable of doing that? Well, in that modality um, of thought, we would say that, well, you're not, you know, you don't have the confidence to do it or something like that. And I think often that's not the case. And I think it starts to become a little bit gaslighty to many of us as athletes to have this sort of perspective assigned to this. So another area, frankly, where we see this is when people think about uh, economic inequality within societies especially uh, for Americans, have a very, very inaccurate understanding of how things are distributed in society. So it's an act of faith to think things are fair and equitable in society. And to be fair, a lot of Americans don't think that's the case. But when you look at that society, your perception of how fair or just that society is, well, that's going to be informed by the extent to which um, you know you have a certain concept of what that society looks like. And that's where what you know um, is what is real. So, and that's going to inform that possibility of understanding things in this constrained faith-based way. But if it doesn't occur to you in the first place that these things should be validated or should be proven or demonstrated to be correct and that you should be able to um, know what you're doing and why you're doing it, then it's not going to occur to you to think about this stuff as a validated practice, especially because most coaches, you know, the majority, maybe not an overwhelming majority, but I would still say the vast majority of coaches, you know, look for compliance and they look, you know, it's a hierarchical model. It's a sort of managerial attitude. And I think sometimes what you're really trying to do as a coach is you need to be able to say, okay, you know, our understanding is developing you know, I'm asking that you are willing to follow me here on this, but I'm as I'm continuing to work um, towards your understanding, and we're going to get there. Versus a lot of times, you know, coaches don't want to be confronted with questions, and if they're given a question, you know, they'll just sort of fumble, and they don't really have anything to say, because for them, their training is also an act of faith. They don't really know what they're doing, per se, beyond that they've looked um, at information that's been presented to them and they've accepted it as true and they say, okay, well, I'm going to do this. And I think that at the level of an athlete, 
we should be validating our practice and we should be trying to develop systems to understand what we're doing. And I think as coaches, we should be teaching athletes how to do this. It doesn't matter if they're adult athletes or young athletes. If you have the value as a coach, a value part of that value is the value of evaluation and assessing whether or not things work. But if you have an active faith approach, then you don't need to apply that. Um, and I think that with training more broadly, um, we have an inability to recognize what are the questions to be asking in the first place. And because it doesn't, if it's not occurring to us that, you know, we're living in this construct of understanding of how training works, what training is, that's constraining. We're not going to know what questions to ask if they're not um, presented to us as possible questions in the first place. And so, you know, this dynamic of perceiving things to be true um, without knowing if they're true can be frustrating. You know, like, what do you do with the, the statement, you know, this statement is false, right? I mean, these, you start to get into these sort of paradoxical places, and that's where that you have to know how, you have to look at research, you have to think through this stuff, you have to have strategies of understanding. Um, one of the things I shared recently on the Instagram page at Black Cats Run, and you can go and refer to this if you want, um, but I tried to show what uh, our different concepts of value of training zones are. Now, I've been suggesting on the podcast more and more, trying to emphasize the idea that training zones are kind of basically not valuable or not valid. And, you know, this modeled benefits per zone concept that I tried to explore, um, I think sort of reflects this, as well as reflecting the way in which like our, our faith in certain mechanisms of training is automatic, and then that prevents us from asking questions. So one graph I have on here just shows uh, model benefits per zone. And the idea is to show proportionally, you know, how much benefit do you get from these different zones. And, and the zones here, if you don't have this in front of you, are active recovery, aerobic capacity, tempo, sweet spot, threshold, VO2 max. So that's six zones that we're looking at. And these, I ordered, I um, ranked these or evaluated these on uh, a net benefits points thing. All right. And it's more so to represent the concept than anything else. But you see, active recovery comes in at maybe around 11. Aerobic capacity comes in at maybe around 15. Tempo, and this is the point in which we're over lactate threshold. Now we see this jump. Tempo is 25, sweet spot is 31, threshold is 30, VO2 max is 28. So this would be information that might, you know, sort of reinforce that problem of like, well, the training is just kind of like this thing and you do these intensities and then that's good and there's nothing really to question there. So the next thing I did is I said, well, if we take those values, right, you know, these are the sort of values and sort of you know, how much impact did you have on these different, supposedly on these different physiological processes, which is like a whole premise that could be kind of like limited in and of itself. But what I'm trying to do here really is I'm trying to take the argument for this, for these zones and for the value of these zones at its own um, form of representation. Okay, not applying my own thing, but I'm going to take the way this is arguing for itself and I'm going to interpret it from its own data or from its own models. So then if you value um, value per minute, essentially um, the least valuable is aerobic capacity. Um, 
then tempo, then active recovery, um, then sweet spot. And those are all basically like barely over one. Okay. So they're probably like a tenth to two tenths of value unit per minute per zone. Okay. Threshold, you go up to one value per minute. And check this out. At VO2 max, we go up to basically 4.8 or 4.9 value per minute. So overwhelmingly, VO2 max, the most valuable per minute. And that isn't a surprise because we see VO2 max being overwhelmingly um, a dominant paradigm across multiple endurance sports. And I think that's been true um, you know, at least for the last 25 to 30 years now. And I think with some ideas about lactate threshold, there's a question of whether or not we're going to see this shift. But I also think, and I discussed this in an episode behind the curtain, I also think there's a huge barrier there where if people can't understand the lactate threshold stuff correctly, they're not going to be able to apply it correctly. And people are just going to be getting wicked confused, and they're not going to be able to engage with it in a way that's going to be productive. So I think... Um, we trivialize uh, things like what's the value of the training um, by taking them at, on faith and just on principle of, well, it is there and, and people are doing it. And so, of course, it must be good. Why should I even ask a question about what it does? Um, or then we get some information that doesn't make sense and probably confuses us even more. And then it's sort of like, well, I guess this just must be true because it sounds smart and I just don't get it. But it sounds smart, so it must be valid. And I think when, when we approach it with that kind of trivialization, I think we are assuming risk. And the risk is that we don't end up knowing or understanding what's going on. And uh, Peter Coe, who, you know, a lot of ways, you know, I have felt that, you know, Peter Coe has done a, a disservice vis-a-vis the sort of stuff that was sort of taken out of subco, you know, training and ideas about, you know, you don't need to practice very much and you need to practice really hard. And I think that's sort of one of the issues of, you know, again, how do you cue? And that's what we're exploring in our our two-part episode, second part still forthcoming, um, you know, who's on first? Like, what's the confusion about that language? But one thing I will say uh, for Peter Coe that I like is, you know, the, I might be paraphrasing, but, you know, basically saying, if you don't know why you're doing it in training, if you can't explain why you're doing everything you're doing in training, don't do it. And I think that's basically been used um, by the high intensity in the VO2 max culture to sort of argue for further for that and say like, well, we can, pr- we have these specific rationales for doing this. So this is valuable. But what I would say is, it's not necessarily the case um, that other training isn't valuable. It's that we're not taking the time to figure that out. And right now, a lot of people are taking the value of VO2 max and, you know, LT2 and things like this on faith, and we're not questioning them and, and we're not trying to understand them. And that's a part of what I'm trying to do on this podcast is if you're, you know, listening through, you know, all multiple episodes um, I think this is episode 49, so we're probably approaching 50 hours <laughs> worth of, of listening time, you know, so plenty backlog there to, to wade through if you're only getting to the podcast now for the first time, and if so, welcome. Um, but yeah, that's what we're trying to do here, is we're trying to explore this stuff in, in a deep dive way, because I think, um, you know, what is 
what do the Ents say in uh, the Two Towers, right? Something like anything worth saying is worth taking a long time to say. And I think it would be awesome if everything could be simplified, but I think we have to sometimes have long conversations to establish the understandings before we can get to the point where our, our language can become that quick and, and soundbitey. So what are the reasons why these problems of perspectives uh, are an issue? How can we explore some of these problems and what's the impact and what can this help to peel back in terms of what we can understand about training? Because the goal of this episode isn't to just sort of like badger or berate people for not asking questions, but the goal is to really try to say, you know, why is it that it's so it's so common um, for us to sort of accept training, right? Like I said, um, you know, already that there's some element in which, you know, faith in training is sort of like its own virtue. It's not the transference of some, you know, uh, religious or religiosity behavior into athletics, although I know some people certainly do that. Um, God gets more kudos than people's coaches and supporters in these like post world championship and Olympic interviews. Sometimes it seems very odd. Um, but I think that when we try to, you know, peel this back, I think we can start to actually understand better what it is that we might want to be doing because it starts to point towards a process of understanding that is going to make our training more effective because that's the ultimate value here is that the more we understand this stuff, the more we understand what questions to ask, the more we can eliminate things that don't work, the more we can develop um, and advance our training. And, you know, I think the, the goal, the utopic goal is that everybody gets to feel good and enjoy exercise and enjoy fitness and improve and, you know, have that happen consistently. So you look at this stuff, one area where people study perception is actually economics. And Dan Airely, who's a professor, I think, at Duke University right now, has done some cool stuff studying behavioral economics and like how do people make decisions and you know how accurate are our perceptions. In economics, there's a concept called rational choice theory, which suggests that people are going to make the best possible choice for themselves in any given situation. Um, but you know, some of these ideas in economics were sort of crafted out of a worldview in which you know the masses, the people, weren't really considered to be on the same level as the people that maybe uh, economic economists were thinking about when they're thinking about economic actors and decision makers. And when we expand outside of that sort of initial narrow imagining of who those people are, we realize identities of people are actually very complex and that people aren't going to see the world in the same way. And as a consequence of that alone, um, perceptions are going to be different and expectations are going to be different and expectations are important because our expectations shape reality, because reality is whatever we think it is. Okay, there's like the real, um, you know, and then there's the really real, like what's real to us, right, versus what's actually real. And I think subjectively, if reality is something that we experience, then reality is shaped through our expectations. And I don't think we're always as good at managing our expectations as uh, you might think. And some of the stuff that Dan Airely um, has done is, you know, look at the ways in which um, placing like different options next to one another can change our sense of value. So, you know, they did a study where they took um, different faces and um, they had asked people 
who would you rather go on a date with? The original version or the slightly uglier version? And people overwhelmingly picked the original version. And one of the things Dan Early says is this putting this less attractive version next to it increased the appeal of the original version. So in that instance, right, people's perception of things is changing uh, because our expectation is if this person is more attractive than they are, you know, by comparison, then they must be like better and more attractive overall, right? And that our perception of whether or not they're attractive or appealing isn't native to their appearance. It's by point of comparison to other things. And you go back to something like VO2 max, right? And when you have a presentation of VO2 max, right, which in and of itself, you know, I would suggest, I don't think anybody actually wants to train at that intensity. And and I do think VO2 max is, is somewhat imaginary too, and check out Steve Magnus's article on the fallacy of the Max if you want to get more into that pretty good article. Um, but, you know, if you put next to it this like, well, here's this aerobic capacity, but the aerobic capacity training just like doesn't, we don't really have like a reason for it. We don't really have a definition of it. And so why would you do that? But when you have these like specific workouts and then culturally we talk about them as being really important and key, and then everybody starts imitating that language Um, Because we don't want to be seen as being left out and not understanding what's going on. And then we have these other just sort of generic, oh, yeah, I'm just sort of out swimming or running or skiing or uh, riding or whatever for this just sort of ambiguous amount of time at this intensity that's like not hard but not easy. And there's this sense that like you do this and like this is how your volume goes up. But it becomes really ill-defined. And if we don't define that specifically, our conclusion is going to be it's not valuable. And so when you put these things next to one another, because of the way we talk about sub-lactate threshold, like, you know, I've said this before, but there's an episode from the On Coaching podcast where John Marcus says that anything in that green zone of polarized training is recovery. And that's not correct, right? Um, But that's an example of somebody who is, you know, active in coaching high-level athletes in, you know, these sports, you know, reaching a conclusion. And I would say that's a, an example of that sort of comparative violence, um, comparative violence, excuse me, <laughs> violence to aerobic capacity maybe, um, but comparative um, aspect of, you know, comparative bias, right? When you're saying, okay, this VO2 max is actually looking more and more attractive or this LT2 is looking more and more attractive because it's being compared to this like ugly child. And I, and I think that's also a myth. I think if people understood the history of this stuff, you'd actually recognize that this is inverted, that we've sort of, um, it's kind of like a crazy person, right? Um, in the kindest possible way towards crazy people everywhere, but where people, you don't necessarily know, but you know, you get to know some people and after a while it's like, wow, like my relationship with this person is just like really strange. I can't make heads or tails of it. Um, but it's like we're finding that more appealing maybe because of like the drama or the intensity or the chaos and then the relationships that are more equitable and balanced <laughs> we think just aren't valuable because we just don't see anything happening, right? Um, and so these problems of perception, right, aren't really there um, to like enforce anything in terms of good decision making they just sort of are right it's not like we consciously decide to perceive things in a right or wrong way a selective attention is another example of this 
there's a video and you can find it on YouTube if you just look up a selective attention gorilla experiment. Um, but there's some people passing um, a ball and white shirts and you count how many times are they passing. And then afterwards you say, well, who saw the gorilla? And I think it's, you know, usually maybe 40 to 50 percent of people don't notice the gorilla. Well, that's selective attention. There's this thing going on, but because we're looking at this other thing, we're ignoring the value of this other aspect. And when you're trying to define what the significance is of these kinds of illusions, um, you know, you can apply this to training, right? You can apply this to, you know, not just culture in general, but training specifically. How do we see and define training as valuable or not valuable. And if you're interested in this behavioral stuff and how it affects decision-making, um, you can check, Dan Early has a couple of TED Talks, I think all of which are really enjoyable and informative, and I recommend checking those out. But another academic discipline that we can apply here is cultural anthropology. I had a professor um, at Bates, uh, Loring Danforth, although everybody... What called him Danny Danforth, but um, Professor Danforth was known for studying uh, firewalking. And if you don't know what firewalking is, uh, firewalking is basically um, laying out hot coals uh, that you you know generate by you know burning wood, and then you rake out the coals, and then people barefoot walk across these hot coals as, you know, it's a ritual. And, you know, he has a book, uh, Firewalking and Religious Healing, and he compared firewalking in Greece to the uh, firewalking movement in the United States. And one of the big aspects of this as a kind of a ritual is that it engages in transformation. So you're going from state A to state B. And what's really interesting about firewalking when we also think about athletic training, and you're going to see that I'm going to start to get at this idea that I think some of the things that we do in training and we take on faith is because we actually engage with training as a system of ritual, you know, and, and when we don't validate it, right, and things have ritual significance in the same way that something like firewalking and other, many other cultural practices but take on a level of meaning that transcends the, like, tangible, measurable meaning. And what's interesting with firewalking is uh, in Greece, it's about health. So it's a physical change in that sense, or maybe not maybe a literal physical change, but it's about being moving, um, you know, metaphorically um, from a state of illness to a state of health, right? Now, firewalking isn't going to necessarily cure you, right? That's not, you don't go to the doctor's office and get prescribed firewalking, but at the same time, right, we see this kind of pattern play out in society all the time. And it's so, and this is, but culturally, right, we see that you can have these rituals that are, you know, believed or perceived to create a physical change, right? And what's interesting about firewalking as a ritual of, of health and uh, healing is that a part of our training is about health. And in, in some ways, you might say it's, it's about healing. And certainly there are practices in terms of recovery and injury that specifically are about healing. And a lot of these things that we do um, to get better, like foam rolling, or, you know, you can kind of go down the ladder into the increasingly bullshit things, but like infrared light and whatnot, 
you know, start to look more and more like they need to be explained via cultural anthropology because they don't really hold up to any validated system. So, but it's not just an identity change. Um, it's perceived as like a, a tangible substantive change. So, you know, in that sense that you, you get in an ice bath, um, you know, that's sort of the inversion of firewalking and that's become super popular. And I mean, it's, you know, sense idea of cleansing, purification, you know, the adversity and the challenge of it is there. You can find nonsense, um, little clip videos online, people claiming that, you know, I, I saw something ice bath makes you 10 times as high as heroin for 10 times as long. And like, I'm, I'm, I will acknowledge I've never taken heroin, so maybe I can't make this comparison, but I'm going to anyway. I don't believe that the experience of being immersed in water with ice floating in it is comparable to taking heroin. Um, and maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> but when we look at um, this stuff like that, right, that's an example of something that's more than just an identity change, right? You're, you're, you are going from like not recovered to the idea is now you're more recovered, okay? Um, but that's also, and that's sort of an identity, right? The fatigued athlete, the recovered athlete, but it's also supposed to be real. And so even in a rational context, um, I think we recognize that people are going to have a hard time separating their expectations from reality, right? Because you can read stuff and find stuff that seems to suggest that training at VO2 max or using ice baths or, you know, whatever, right? We don't need to go through the whole list, um, but that all of these mechanisms or these different interventions um, have this value that is like just disproportional to the scale of what's being put it put in, right? That you take that kind of idea in a general sense of like, you know, matter is neither created or destroyed. It's like this is, but this stuff is like turning lead into gold. It's like by putting into this thing, we're now creating this stuff that is not proportional to what is put in there. It's like, you know, if you put in, you know, a cupcake in the oven and then you come out and there's a five layer wedding cake, like that just doesn't happen, right? You know, these processes of transformation take this thing and turn it into something else. Um, but that thing that comes out the other side, you know, needs, should be tangibly uh, explained vis-a-vis -vis what the input was. Um, so, we're going to have a hard time trying to understand what's going on if our convictions about training are more heavily um, influenced by like social construction, right? And if we don't, and like that's our substantive thought process is like, well, intensity is good because intensity makes us better, right? Another one that I think a lot of us, you know, worry about is, well, if I'm not training at quote unquote race pace, how do I get better? But like, how do you define race pace? Well, in theory, you're not going to be able to do that race pace until the day of the race. So if you're training at race pace on any day that's not the race, then it's probably not actually really your race pace because it's a future pace. But the other thing is like, what's really happening when you're training at race pace? Well, race pace is, even if you take this zone model, race pace is a total gamut of different physiological concepts you know, based on the duration of the race is going to totally change what that is. And there's a certain point where race pace is long enough that it should be lactate threshold. But for a lot of races, the races are so short that you're probably not in the actual race cruising around under that intensity. 
But if we have a social constructed notion of race pace equals adapt adaptation and we have to do this to get efficient, you know, that's like firewalking, right? We're applying this thing because we have this conviction of transformation, right? We're going to go from the identity of being unable to execute such and such pace to now we can do such and such pace. And, you know, as with, you know, um, sort of the magical healing of firewalking, it's like the magical transformation of, of these kinds of, of training concepts. And an expectation of VO2 max is also seen um, as transformative. And conflicting with the fact of this or with LT2, um, what conflicts with the expectations here is there's actually a lot of evidence that this doesn't work. So if you have a medical condition and you firewalk, um, you may feel and experience transformation. The community may see you as having transformed and being different, but that's not going to change. If you do the Michigan, which is this stupid track workout um, that's sort of gone somewhat in and out of uh, style at universities uh, in the United States. But if you do the Michigan, you know, which is just a stupid, really hard workout that basically taps into a race effort, you know, then there's the sense of, well, now I'm ready. And one of the things that pops up on Instagram for me are videos of people saying, well, this is this special workout we did and it was friggin' crazy and you know, it's just one of those, like, whatever, and fill in the blank with this is why it was, like, so epic and hard. And then, and that's how I knew we were ready. Well, that's firewalking. That's not logical, rational training. That's assigning a disproportionate output relative to the input. And I think at this point, you know, let's just sort of define that that's basically magic. Okay? Because if magic is something that generates a conviction of a demonstrable capacity but where there's no actual reason why that capacity could possibly be there to the point where it must not be, but everybody collectively like agrees it's present, I think that's magic. And, you know, with cultural anthropology, we see that as true. And with, you know, additionally, Dan Airely's research with behavioral economics and the research of other people around behavior, um, like selective attention, I think what we realize is our ability, A, to ignore things in favor of other things, even if those things ignored should be glaringly obvious, like somebody walking through the room in a gorilla suit and people not processing that, that's not something that we think would be should be the case. Um, but you know, with these these kinds of exemplars of behavior and culture and how people interact with their perception of reality and how their expectations, you know, become fulfilled as their understanding of reality. Um, I think we start to see that like it's really actually going to be kind of difficult for a lot of us to sort through, well, is our training good or bad? And if somebody tells you to do something and they can't demonstrate why that is, you know, that's difficult. And that's why anything worth saying is worth taking a long time to say, because if you really have evidence and reason to do something, there should be a lot to discuss. And if people have nothing to discuss, then you need either need to look for further or you need to look elsewhere, in my opinion. And so there's also this weird aspect, and I want to acknowledge this, that um, is it possible that there is transformative value to these kinds of things? So I think that we see in some ways that's true, right? Because it's like, why do people seemingly benefit from 
say the the VO2 max? Why do people seemingly benefit from these higher intensities, right? Um, like, is it true that aerobic training is super useless and it's the stuff done above that that's beneficial, that we need to pull this stuff up? Um, and I think that really to figure that out, you have to think about um, the patterns of exertion and the patterns of fatigue. So the half milers who I went to school with at Bates basically only exercised twice a week and then they just sort of screwed around on the indoor track with a tennis ball for like 30 minutes and they wouldn't even go outside in the winter to run. And, and the rest of us um, would just sort of go out and, you know, we were, and the reality is, you know, more motivated to train because we would go out and put on whatever layers we needed and go through the snow and, and run. And we enjoyed doing it, I think. It's not like we were torturing ourselves, but we were doing that because it was necessary. But these half-milers would then you know race really well, and the rest of us would oftentimes struggle to really generate pace or put together a workout. Um, you know, and for us, it was essentially, that's an example of like an act of faith, um, right? That we do this in this way, this will work. But then you're also seeing this thing where it's like, well, these guys are going well. Well, I think the reality is they could only work out basically twice a week. At the intensities, these workouts were prescribed. If people wanted to have any legs for a meet on the weekend, that was all you could really do. And I don't think they arrived at that conclusion because <laughs> they, you know, had this insight, right? I think they thought that they did the workouts and they were like, well, and nothing else is important. It's all about the workouts. And I feel that's a reasonable conclusion because I, you know, talked to to these guys and, and that's basically what they said. So, you know, and ver vice versa, the rest of us believe, well, we need to be out here, you know, uh, grinding away at these miles that are like kind of ill-defined. So those are two kinds of acts of faith, but we're seeing that this certain, that's where sort of like, well, you got to believe in the system, right? And the real question would be, well, where was the coach in terms of making an assessment of, okay, you got these guys over here who are basically only exercising twice a week. And these guys over here are, you know, well, it was basically, well, those guys are the half milers. And there's a say, well, half mile is a different event. That's not true. Um, if you do workouts that are exhaustive, um, that's a different process. And the only way to get whatever performance you're going to get out of that is going to be if you are ensuring that you get to the competition and your legs are no longer tired. Okay, that doesn't support the model, right? That's just, that's the necessary pattern. Um, if you're going to go to failure basically twice a week doing repeat 200s or 300s or whatever, and you'd have guys running repeat quarters and be running the last 400 in 53, 52, like very impressive. And, you know, this was not some high, you know, caliber division one school with, you know, scholarships, although, you know, I've most of us, you know, were better than, you know, most people. We were a good running program, um, you know, but we had guys running in the low 150s in the half mile, not 147 or 148. So our belief, though, here uh, in the symbol is obfuscating our assessment of causality, right? And so this system of symbols is what we start to see is here because it's faith in these symbols, like VO2 max is a symbol, Um and these actions as symbolic systems of meaning start to take over. And we're not, and that's why this faith trap is so easy to fall into because we're not understanding the effectiveness of this stuff based on the actual effects that it has. We're understanding it from the perspective of 
well, what is like the badge value or, you know, the symbolic value of VO2 max? Like the symbol of VO2 max is like getting fast, right? And so then when we see that, we're really interpreting get fast. And then this other stuff, the symbolic value is just kind of like, meh, stuff, right? Not really, nobody really knows what to say, right? So there's really no symbolic value there. And when we don't have deep understanding, these symbolic systems of, of meaning are predominant. And it turns out there's... Um, a mountain of evidence that people do operate this way. Um, you know, one, for instance, here would be uh, like Clifford Gertz, cultural anthropologist, um, you know, and he had this idea that, um, you know, culture comes from basically the reality that people construct, right, through interacting with the world and that guides or informs and dictates the kind of choices that people make. Um and, you know, I'm not an expert on this, but I think at the time that was sort of like, you know, that was a part of a paradigm shift in cultural anthropology. And a phrase that I always associate with Gertz, I don't even know if it's even directly attributable to him or not, is but this real versus really real is what comes to mind. And this idea of there's distinctions in how people experience reality um, and that like there's sort of these competing understandings of reality and, you know, sort of a purely, you know, scientific concept, I think, tries to ascertain the absolute nature of things. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but that, you know, the Gertzian kind of thought process is, I think, to think about, you know, if you want to understand, you know, people's behavior and their processes, you have to ascertain what's real to them. And I think when we start to dig more into this, you know, we see that um, a part of that reality for people, that socially constructed reality is has to do with liminality and, and rites of passage. And I think training fits in as symbolic practice. And, you know, sport has been around for a long time. And if you expand that to include, um, you know, physical uh, performance, you know, including, you know, martial um, and because they're unfortunately, uh, or I don't know, some people probably don't think it's unfortunate, but unfortunately, kind of one of the morbid origins of modern sport is a sort of martial war, you know, warrior war training type practices. And if you look in these, um, like you see that training as a system of symbolic practice where, um, you know, rites of passage that move people from one threshold to another are specific. And it, you know, physical achievement, you know, like, again, you expand outside of just training in the way we think of it today to, you know, historically, how have people prepared for physical performance? And um, you think about like gladiators, you think about uh, warrior classes in feudal societies, you know, uh, knights um, in Western Europe, you think about, uh, you know, samurai um, in Japan and, you know, the samurai, for example, as a warrior class, highly ritualized in appearance and, and behavior. Um, and I'm not saying that athletes today are a warrior class. I reject um, and I'm very disappointed in this sort of alpha male, you know, postmodern masculine crisis that, you know, people are sort of indulging in. I, I think it's pretty obnoxious and I think it's pretty culturally uh, harsh. Um, and, and insensitive, but, and I think that's a problem. 
But anyway, the point of this isn't to start ranting and raving about, you know, the annoying qualities of so-called alpha males. But I think that what we are saying, right, is that there's a clear pattern by which symbolic practice is shifting the perception of status and the attainment of status as competent, capable, and, you know, essentially of performing. And I think that this is stuff that has not been displaced in the modern era of sport. So like with gladiators uh, in Rome, you know, training in particular contexts, you know, eating particular diets, that was very regulated, um, you know, but symbolism, right? That's what that then becomes, right? When practices are consistent and repeated and replicable, they become ritual. And then you get away from being, um, you know, innovative and, um, you know, process oriented and evaluative, which is where good training comes from. And then people just try to ritualistically recreate this stuff. And like, you know, whereas the gladiators had their specific cloistered environment, um, today we call that a high performance center. (laughs) And it's a space that most of us are denied access to. Um, and it has a lot of symbolic power to people where they feel they need to go to, you know, in the United States. You know, a lot of people feel like if I want to be an outdoor athlete, I need to go live in Boulder or I need to go live in Flagstaff or whatever. And if we're not there, then we're failing in some way. And I would, you know, point out that even something like the concept of being in shape, the appearance of an athlete becomes ritual. Um, you know, is the six pack an important uh, symbol, right, for capability? And there is a history to the perception of Achieving certain proportion ratio form is important. We see the problem, um, you know, with, you know, coach relationships with athletes. You see a lot of stuff um, about like uh, for female athletes, the experience of feeling immense pressure um, to try to like engage in unhealthy dietary habits to try to change their physique because that's the only path to performance. And there's evidence that, you know, coaches who are having a lot of coaching success are though also at the same time you know, encouraging this, right? And that's an extension of that symbolic value. I think the popularity of core strengthening exercises where, you know, for, I guess it's one thing if you're like, okay, I'm this professional athlete where I don't have anything. um, I've managed to reach the point where I don't have anything that I need to do during the day besides, you know, follow my training lifestyle and you're looking for something else to do. Okay. You're going to, you know, get out, um, you know, the medicine ball or, you know, do some, you know, core movement, whatever, right? But then when you have people who um, are trading in their aerobic training time for doing core exercises, um, you know, what is that really working towards? And I I think if you look at photographs, I think you see that uh, athletes have in the last 30 years, like even in endurance athletes, you know, much more like beefier course. I mean, not universally, but in certain um, countries, I think in Western culture, you see this more of these like, you know, six packs. And I'm not saying that people look good or bad, not here to um, engage in that kind of pointless discussion, but I think it's it's different. Um, you can compare, for example, Ashton Eaton to Daly Thompson. Um, and both of them, uh, de- Olympic decathlete champions, and you look at their performance for their events, very similar. But then if you look at their physique, um, very different. You know, Daly Thompson doesn't look 
remarkable, basically. And maybe that wasn't true at the time, but that is true from our contemporary perspective. So, right, is this an example of symbolic meaning taking priority where we need to apply symbols, but we also then need to create these symbols um, in the way we present? And when we see sport as success without evidence, then again, that's ritual symbolism, and it meets our definition in this episode of magic. And the weight of the historical evidence does support the notion that symbolic systems are sometimes more important in understanding people's behavior than the functional. And what does that mean? Well, that means that a lot of the training that you might be doing is actually driven by these symbolic modes of constructed value and not based on like an actual scientific method of understanding. One thing that I would you know, advocate for with any athlete that I work with is like evaluation. And uh, some people are resistant to that. And if that's the case, that's fine. But then I can't work with them on athletics because I, how can we know if what we're doing is effective unless we have some way to look at it? But some people are just like, give me the training plan and then there's the race in X amount of time and I'm just going to do this and then I'm going to go to the race and presumably it's going to work. And my feeling is if somebody says that they can do that, you know, that's just absurd, you know, but I think we, you know, you need to look and say, what's our responsiveness? How are we experiencing what's going on? Constantly reevaluating, saying, okay, what's data? Okay, is there a race before like the primary goal race? What happened there? What is that telling us? And, you know, for me, at the end of every sort of race cycle, what have we learned? And that's one of the things I've found most rewarding and engaging about um, training and learning about training and trying different things in training and talking to people about their experiences is that there's always more room to develop and that the value of the coach isn't saying, hey, I have this generic training plan. Let me sell to you for 200, 300, 400, 500, 600, 700. I've heard of coaches who are former Olympi- Olympic champions just selling people the exact identical training schedule for like $800 a month and people pay for it. And that doesn't make sense, but that's that act of faith, right? The symbolism of the Olympics, right? Being an Olympic champion, you know, it adds this value. Um, and I think that a lot of this athletic culture and this physical performance culture is stuff that has its roots in a sort of before scientific method um, process where culturally there were just more limited um, understandings of how to prove things to be true or even the notion that things should be proved to be true um, or things should be verified or um, you know things should be replicable whereas I would say that you know if you're an athlete and you know you're not feeling stronger that doesn't mean it's working right but this whole like trust the process believe in the process you know I've gone from and thinking that was kind of a clever phrase to realizing like, well, that's actually like super kind of controlling, right? Because it's basically saying, nope, we can't ask questions. We can't have dialogue. We can't figure this out. Faith is the virtue of being a great athlete, um, whatever great means to you, right? I mean, you don't have to be the best in the world, but to be a great athlete is somebody who improves and gets better relative to wherever they started. So running uh, races, or any races, I guess, I shouldn't just say running races, Uh, any races are symbolic, right? The race is a liminal trial, it's a rite of passage, right? It's a space where like you aren't a uh, cyclist, but you're cycling, right? Whereas when you're not doing this stuff, you'd say, well, I'm a, you know, triathlete. I guess I don't know if you would say triathloning, but like when you're racing, right, you're like in this space of like becoming. And then when you get to the finish, like you've experienced a 
transformation. And in that mode, we're basically waiting and waiting and waiting. And we're preparing and preparing and preparing for that rite of passage. And then we go in one end and, you know, like the star-bellied snitches, we come out the other side with this badge of achievement or this new personal best. And our identity has hopefully changed, right? Or we fail, okay? And we don't achieve that. Um, But like when we think about the way races function as a rite of passage, um, and then we think about, well, how does training build towards that? We come back to periodization. I think we recognize that periodization is just an organization and patterning of symbols. And that's done based on the context, right? So it's like, okay, VO2 max means faster. So we want faster before the rite of passage, because that's really important to enter that liminal space and cross over the threshold successfully and so we're just building these things based on on value so it's like this abstract puzzle of it's like well who can be the most fluent in these systems of symbolic meaning and if they work for you then it's like that's evidence that it's good and if it doesn't work we just kind of dismiss that and that's magic right when things are existing when you have that gorilla walking through and it's, you know, selective attention. We're not paying attention to the things that matter. Um, you know, one piece of, in, of symbol, symbol is how we think about endurance training. So like the 20-mile run, for example, uh, is an endurance symbol. Um, it has symbolic value for the marathon runner. And the belief, by the way, that there's different kinds of training for different distances if anybody says that, you know, frankly, they're an idiot because that doesn't make sense. Fitness is fitness. You don't create 10K fitness or 5K fitness or, you know, sprint triathlon fitness or 100 meter freestyle fitness or 200 meter freestyle fitness or whatever, right? Like, you know, that's not what goes on, okay? You have fitness and then if you're fit, then that should translate into proficiency in different things. But again, you know, we see the symbolic thing becoming predominant. So the, the 20 mile run as an endurance symbol, right, is a saying, okay, if I do this, I'll, I will have endurance. But what's the common experience of the marathon? The common experience is, is people blowing up and hitting the wall. And the common experience is people actually, you know, usually the stereotype narrative is the last 10 kilometers is when people blow up. And yet the appropriate symbol of endurance is that I'm doing 20 mile runs. So I look at that and I say, Okay, so the 20-mile run is the sign that you have endurance, and this is like the popular concept of the training intervention, and we accept on faith that's going to work, but we also have all this evidence, all these gorillas in the room of people blowing up, okay, ironically, after 20 miles. So, and if you figure, you know, like, maybe, you know, this would be a little faster, slower, right, in the race than the actual training run. But nonetheless, like, to me, that's a a red flag. But because the 20-mile run, right, then becomes its own sort of smaller ritual, right, and in some senses, some workouts become rites of passage too, and they need to sort of take on or capture that liminal quality of the race because there's this idea of, like, pre-liminalizing yourself so that you can experience transformation in the competition, and it, it just it becomes a system that's just not rational. So it's difficult to explain, but you know, as the 20 mile run, I would argue is not effective endurance for this stuff. 
because you know if you look and you see there are enough people who have proficiency and success with this that if you aren't experiencing proficiency in the race and the competition then you should be able to attain it. And if you're not, then you need to change your training. Not, okay, but the 20-mile run is endurance. I need, I need this endurance thing. This has this symbolic value, this, and that's my system of meaning, and so I'm just going to keep doing that. And we just sort of accept this sort of variability of that, and you know, that's that sort of magical quality of, of like the firewalking or whatever. So I think then what we want to do is we want to think about um, validating systems. And when we think about um, this, I think we want to think about the historical process of the intellectual enlightenment. And I think what we recognize is that evidence-based practices of understanding are really important. Um, and you know that was why that time period has is so like hyped up um, in you know Western tradition, historical tradition, because. Um, it's transformative um, in the process that people use to understand what's going on. And so that method of understanding, right, is looking at things from an experimentation perspective, right? You know, how can we validate this process? Like replicable results (laughs) is really important. You should be able to replicate something. So uh, if somebody is doing a training thing and they're saying, well, I've figured this out. And then, you know, they convey this to you and then you're like, okay, like, I guess through this symbolic system of training, meaning like I see the endurance and I see the speed and these other symbolic things that we combine to mean that we're going to perform well. And then if you apply it and it doesn't work, well, then it doesn't work. And it's incredible the extent to which people are dismissive of that. Um, because, you know, it's like we want to preserve these rituals, you know, preserve our, you know, firewalking ritual, um, if you will, because it has taken on this like cultural significance. It's almost like, you know, people don't even it's it's like, do you want to have a good experience in the races or the competition? Or do you just want to be able to show that you're having sort of the training experience? Um, that's the cultural value. And if we want to move past that, I'm not saying that we need to dispense of all symbolic value. I think that basically that's the way culture kind of works, but that if we want to have effective training, we need to recognize that we're operating in a symbolic environment and we're not operating in inherently like an empirical or already, um, you know, or post-validated environment. And so I think there's two big ways that we can do this with training. I think scientific evidence which is the lab method of controlled experimentation to find mechanisms um, has become the dominant approach. And I think it's a good idea. Um, And, you know, this is coming, you know, also out of, you know, you know, the enlightenment. Um, And I think it's a sort of, but it's also like kind of a reductionist understanding that comes out of the intellectual enlightenment of like find the mechanics. um, And it's sort of like a conscious um, consciousness less, Uh, approach um, of just like what are the you know basic mechanical mechanisms that are driving how things work and that you know we can identify these through the use of the scientific method and that's largely been true because you know if you look at the scale of change and innovation in human society over the last 225 years it's been astronomical but when you're studying and trying to validate uh, training practice, 
um, it becomes really constrained due to the design and scope of the studies done because it's really difficult to impose this controlled variable approach when you're basically studying human behavior. Um, and you can't remove the driver from the engine. And this idea of understanding, and I guess we shouldn't just say the intellectual enlightenment, but also the scientific revolution, this idea of understanding from those sort of two periods, they sort of flow together, and I think we can kind of think of them as being amorphously whole in a broad historical perspective, but they sort of remove that idea of the driver from the engine, right? But we need to account for that. And an alternative way to try to then validate training is something that reminds me of an economics-esque approach. Like, what does the data support? Uh, Stephen Levitt, who wrote Freakonomics, says that Ted's his TED talk about car seats. And he shows that car seats actually increase infant um, fatalities. And yet it's law um, here that you have to put infants in car seats. And he demonstrated this by looking at the real world data, which is an economics approach. And, you know, people didn't care because the car seat is a symbol and people associate that symbol with safety. And so they can't separate from that. Right. So yet another example of, you know, symbolism taking over understanding um, and it becomes dominant. And, you know, car seats continue to be required, even though you're increasing uh, the likelihood of of death. (laughs) of the car seat occupant. And so with the economics concept though, well, why don't we just look at the real world data? We have all this real world data. And I've done some other episodes where I've tried to explore this idea of how the way in which the data we create is sort of uh, limiting or constraining what we're able to perceive, right? Because we also have an interesting phenomenon in training where like our symbolic uh, systems of meaning are like, limiting our ability to apply different practices. But even within that, even within the space in which everybody's kind of applying the same, you know, broadly applying similar high intensity is where you really get good, train at race pace to really get ready to race, et cetera, et cetera. Like we're still seeing like people blowing up, inconsistent level of performances. There's a disconnect between what people uh, believe they're prepared to do and what they're actually able to do. And, you know, it becomes Sisyphistic very quickly because you see people pushing the rock up the hill and doing the same things again and again. And from an economics idea, like we don't really need to know, always know the specific physiology. But what we want to do, I think, is we want to find the data trends in performance first, right? And, you know, figuring out how we define these is important. And I think that's something where in terms of individual practice with athletes, what are you going to track, Right. Um, what are you going to look for? And figuring that out is is really helpful. Um, but the problem is like, what data do we want to use? Like, what approaches are we using for selecting our sample size? What practices um, in training are important? Like, are we going to look at all participants? Are we going to look at participants who meet some minimum criteria, like training volume, or age, or training history, etc. And But if we do this, right, we can start to identify patterns um, like Stephen Levitt does with cars and uh, car seats and safety outcomes and looking at real world crash data. And we can look at this with training and then say, okay, now we know what we need to study. Can we then figure out the mechanism there? 
And like, I think when you look at the real world data, what you see is that, you know, aerobic training is actually what has been generally validated and that high intensity hasn't been, but high intensity has such specific value. And I think it's because the rite of passage of the race is oftentimes experienced as being very difficult. And that might be partly because uh, people make it difficult by overestimating what they can do and then going out and setting themselves up for some sort of an implosion. But if you think about like uh, music, playing music, playing an instrument, um, in music, we don't think it's reasonable to randomly sit down to play and just be like, oh my God, I just can't play or play for five minutes. And then just like your whole body just starts going into failure and you fall over. But when I ran the Marine Corps marathon, you know, last year, and I was not really prepared for that properly at all. Um, and there is a section on the course around 20, 22, 23 miles, where it just kind of goes out and back. And it was like crazy because it was like at the point where like carnage was going on. And it was like watching a scene from um, uh, All Quiet on the Western Front. Like there were people staggering back and forth, people just collapsing in the street. There were EMTs rushing out to help people. It was like this incredibly dystopian thing. And people are like lining the sides and be like, yeah, yeah, go, go. Instead of like looking at this like carnage (laughs) in horror and being like, what is going on? Right. But that's really you're really at that point of transformation. If you overcome that, it's like, do we need in like the marathon? Is this why the marathon is so appealing that we need this like point of total failure Um, and that that is what gives it its like value is this that fire walking moment? Because that's what it was like. And I'll be honest, my legs were not good at that point. Um, they were getting very wooden. Um, but, you know, I kept running all the way to the finish and I didn't hit that point of of failure. But, you know, you also wonder, like, how much sort of like uh, histrionics is <laughs> going on at that point, you know, and. Um, I mean, what a coincidence, if it's just a coincidence that they have this out and back on it, because as a runner, you can see these people, right? And it's just like, what the hell is going on? You know, even as you're in your own, like, oh, my God, I just want to be done mode. It's just surreal. And, you know, you realize these experiences happen again, and again, and again. And it, it, to me, points to the fact, well, obviously, something is going wrong in conditioning, because this shouldn't be such a common phenomenon. but that's like if we see this happen all the time in racing, right? But it, if you're practicing and you're preparing for something and you're improving your, your proficiency, you should be able to play. You should be able to perform, right? And in music, we wouldn't think that's the case. But somehow in sports, we accept this. But I suggest that sport really isn't that much different from playing music. It's something that we practice, that we have a capacity and we have a ceiling and what we can do, we, we have a, a floor of what's just so easy that it's like we're not even going to bother. And like we look to transform ourselves through training. And like with, it just seems that we lack the perspective on sport that we should be able to go out and be consistent. Um, and I think it's because we don't really look at playing a piece of music and performing music as being this ritualistic thing because we don't really have this same relationship with pain. And I think pain creates a limited, uh, limited, liminal experience, right? And the whole concept of fire walking, um, you know, walking on coals is non-normative. It's going to have transformative power socially because it's something that's not naturally done. 
And, you know, like people say, I am a marathoner. You know, you know, only X percent of people run the marathon less because, you know, first of all, only X percent of people um, live in a culture and a society that affords the kind of leisure time to do that stuff. And then even within those populations, only X number of people are interested in doing that. But people cling to that. They put the stickers on their car. And I think that's fine. I'm not criticizing that. But I think it's worth noting um, because that's it's all indicative of transformation and rite of passage. And people who are part of that culture, they ascribe meaning to that, you know, qualifying for, you know, the Boston Marathon, right? Meeting, meeting a qualifying standard in anything um, is important. And cycling, you know, going getting your category upgrade to from cat five to four to two to one, you know, that has meaning and that has significance. And people look at these people as initiated, but nobody thinks, um, if you go out and, uh, you know, apply just generic common sense. And I guess it's not common sense, but the common sense principle of practice within your proficiency versus going beyond it. Nobody seems to think that that's correct. People seem to think that there needs to be this like out of body experience. And even people who are, I think generally very reasonable will probably be like, Oh yeah, I really like the, you know, quote unquote, see God smackdown workouts. And that's just so important. And I saw, um, somebody shared me, I can't remember who, but somebody shared me a video on, of, some clip for some interview or podcast and it was like, you know, we did this workout and it was a 600 all out. And then it was like, do 10 by 400 and like survive. That was the goal was just to survive. And it's just, you know, like, come on, man, like that's not good training, you know, but people love that, right? People love consuming that. Um, you know, we like to look at these things, right? It's like, we can't look away. And I think it's because we are, symbolic systems of meaning have value and the, and the conclusion was and that's when I knew we were ready I knew we were ready and uh, okay what you know I, I just don't see that right like for example nobody um, these special workouts um, like they're an altered experience right that's an example of this idea of the altered experience like it's liminal right so we start introduce we see liminality in training and I would argue liminality shouldn't be in training. And the irony is that liminality is socially constructed as transformative, but it's not actually transformative in terms of performance. And, but this is what makes meaning, right? So we have this conflict between the appeal of these ritual symbolic systems of understanding. We're organizing training around the things that we see as symbolically significant. And that's how we are moving forward in terms of what we're doing to try to progress and, and try to cross ground in terms of going from our point A to our point B. But we're not pausing to validate, is this working? We're not asking the question, okay, somebody's doing this thing and this is what they're representing, but what percentage of their training is this? Um, my brother um, knows a guy, you know, older guy now, but once upon a time ran 214 and under 30 minutes for 10K on the road, 214 in the marathon. And, you know, he said that, you know, told my brother, well, you know, I, we used to, I used to do four times a mile at 445. And so my brother was like, oh my God, I, and I said, my question is, what did you do to get to do that? Four times of four miles, that's symbolic, right? That's a, a rite of passage. Like if there's really a transformation, that thing is just somehow culturally allowing it to be acknowledged or, you know, like ritualistically 
you know, making it official, putting a stamp on it. But that's not how you got to that point in the first place. Um, like, for, if nobody thinks that if you go out and, and like, okay, I have a marathon in two weeks. I know I'm going to go race a marathon right now. Like, people, there isn't a belief that that's good um, because, like, oh, you do a race, you're ready to do a marathon, right? Well, but then if you, like, invert that and it's like, oh, it's a workout two weeks out and it's, like, basically the equivalent demand of doing a marathon, now people are all about that. And suddenly somehow that's not destructive, but instead that's enhancing to the point where it totally is going to transform your ability, right? When people do this, they do like these capstone workouts that they attribute like the power of like totally uh, reinventing themselves to that. Um, You can play that down the list. Like, no, oh, you shouldn't run a marathon for a marathon, but you should write, you can race a half marathon two weeks out. Okay. So a half marathon is good for fitness, but a marathon, but then if you're training for a half marathon and you race a half marathon two weeks out, that's not good. You should if you run a 10 K. Right. So this is like, this is a symbolic system. It doesn't actually make any sense. Right. It's, but it's people subscribe to it because we're operating through our system of symbolic understanding. We're not operating through a validated approach. And developing a validated approach, I think, is a key part of being an athlete. And that's what we should look for in, in coaches, is that they should be helping us get to that point of where we can be proving and modeling that what we're doing is working as we go along. And because physically, there is no distinction between a race and a training session beyond the socially constructed labeling. And like, when we construct these labels about different physical activities and exercise, it means that we basically hallucinate into perception um, this sort of like max intensity of training is benefit and max intensity in racing is constraining, but it's the same thing, right? And they can't both be true. And I guess we could call this like the intensity labeling paradox where we see the same thing as opposite impact just by changing the label. And that's symbolic, right? That's a symbolic thing where we're ascribing meaning that isn't necessarily validated. And if you think about it in workouts, people oftentimes go to failure more than in racing. Like they might reach failure every rep. You know, they might do five to 10 reps. And, you know, we did this all the time in college, um, just running to failure again and again. And of course we couldn't race. Of course we looked like slugs um, when we got to the weekend. But, you know, the system didn't allow for a different understanding, right? The system of meaning said, this is how we interpret this. This is what these things symbolizes. And I think the symbols need to be explored beyond um, the social meaning. So what happens when we talk about high performance versus ritual? Um, I think that sports, what we're seeing here is sports can be far more ritualistic than they can be performance driven. So I think most cultures and cultural practices trend towards being, you know, ritual driven. And people, I think what we're seeing is people believe in the power of liminality and cultural transformation. And that plays a significant role in our progression uh, through life. And we're willing, very willing to see people as different or transformed, even when they are not. And most modern training in sport, I think, is more ritualistic than we realize. And, you know, the special sacrifice your soul workouts you know, certainly demonstrate that. Um, you know, so how is it suggested to us, though, that we should continue to do this stuff? What do we need to look for if we want to understand 
um, the fact this differently, right? Because I would say high performance is a ritual, basically. Um, it's a system of ritual. Um, and symbolism is what determines whether or not we are in or out of high performance. And, you know, I find this, you know, so endlessly bamboozling that people continue to subscribe to these concepts. Um, but I think when we look at training and the way we talk about training is it's a pattern, an algorithm, or like a quilt square club, right? Where you're just like putting these things together and then just kind of works. And then you have things like whoop and heart rate variability, which I think really aren't helpful, um, but are used to try to validate this stuff. And so this causes us to think, um, you know, like that the training hard stuff happens on Monday and Wednesday, and that's in the schedule, that should work, right? And so then if you have a hard thing on Monday and another hard thing on Wednesday, then like whatever you show up with on Wednesday, you're recovered. And like that becomes the interpretation because we are extracting our system of meaning from these symbolic systems of communication versus evaluating what's actually substantive. And, you know, if, and if things aren't going well, we drink Gatorade and then we're now we're better, right? Okay. I feel great. And athletes, I'd see this all the time that they would uh, do X, Y, or Z or be like, Hey, you know, I feel awesome. I feel great. And it's like, uh, that's just not possible, right? But their insistence is there because people don't want to be left out, right? People want to be a part of it. And to be a part of it is like you have to like, you know, people are going to be like, okay, I, it's this, I don't know if there's a term for it, but it's like a willingness to see the ritual at play. And it's really weird once you realize that these things don't work, but people are insisting that they're having this effect. Like doing openers, you know, and doing interval, which is you're doing an interval workout and you're making your legs tired, like literally fatiguing your system the day before a race. And I, I think most runners wouldn't do that, but very common in road cycling, at least um, in the U.S. right now. And it doesn't make sense, but it's a ritual and it has the symbolic meaning is all that people are responding to. And yeah, I guess there is sort of a kind of placebo territory and that's interesting to consider here. But I think we, if we take uh, Tim Noakes' central governor theory, I think we can, you know, deconstruct this a little bit more. So this theory says that the brain regulates exercise. And I think that this concept of the brain regulating performance has been taken in some instances to be like, oh, well, I need to teach the brain to like allow for more performance. But I think that what we really under want to use when we think about central govern governor theory is the recognition of the unconscious mechanisms of the brain that we can't consciously uh, regulate our central governor. That's like the whole point is that we get shut down when we're doing certain things. Um, and again, like the whole body, the whole consciousness is physiological. So the central governor is a physiological phenomena. So there's a physiological processes going on there. So consider a race. You go way faster in racing than you do in training. Uh, I did a gravel race this past weekend at Rangeley in Maine in about four hours, I think. Um, and, you know, I went way faster in, in that race and way more intensively than I would do in training in a variety of even 25% of that length. Uh, I don't have a power meter on that gravel bike, unfortunately, otherwise I'd share that data, I think it would, you know, better illustrate the point. 
um, you know, my average chart rate was maybe 40 beats higher than it would be for, you know, a 60 minute ride. And if I was to even get my heart rate up to that point, um, you know, a training ride, that would have to be like very intentional, very deliberate and not something that was just going to flow naturally. And what does that really tell us? Right? Well, so in training, like maybe we're limited, okay, by the central governor, but maybe that's okay because it's not like my training slowly matches up um, with my race performance, you know. And I think there's this, again, this symbolic thing of like, okay, well, we need to do this stuff um, and we need to prepare the body through these series of rituals for this liminal experience, this liminal threshold of, you know, um, challenge or adversity or, you know, purification, trial by fire. Um, of racing. And, you know, I think that actually what the case is that when you train um, and the training, when you when training goes up, then the racing goes up as a factor over that. You don't just like train up and train up and train up until you're at your central governor limit. And then, oh, you're screwed because you didn't do any high intensity. Like if you're going, the fact that you can exceed, um, you know, training effort, training paces, um, very easily in a race context, I think demonstrates the prevalence of the central governor. And I think the central governor theory should actually be taken to reinforce the notion that, you know, we don't need to train it, that even if we're training as hard as we can, um, we're not actually pushing these boundaries. And if you're really concerned about that, do some more races. You know, the irony is that, you know, people are very reluctant to race. And that's the whole thing of like, so you'll do the equivalent of a marathon or a half marathon smackdown two weeks before the race. But if you do it, if you do a race, oh, no, you're not going to do that. Right. And again, an inability to recognize what's actually going on and what the symbolic meaning and, uh, you know, take dominance. And, um, you know, I don't think that this stuff is new um, idea of control, but you know, we think if things are historic, then they just must be outdated by virtue of too much time passing. And we think that older training is what should be dismissed as ritualistic and uninformed, but we totally fail to recognize the extent to which our training practices may be more um, ritual. And people being drawn to symbols, right, is probably what drives that. Um, Like personal virtue and social performance become very important too, right? And so like conforming to the right systems of expression uh, becomes important. And it's difficult to do things differently because culture does sort of encourage conformity. The apparatus of culture does sort of encourage conformity. And that's why we're drawn to these rituals and these um, rites of passage is because they give us this piece of status um, that brings us closer to what we're supposed to be. And, uh, you know, conviction of transformation is disproportionate then to the scale of stimulus and like individual performance is also then an important system of meaning and behaviorally we tend to look for people who are initiated to the secrets you know like that idea of people paying almost a thousand dollars a month because somebody's an olympic champion to just like give them total garbage right oh yeah sure i'll get out the old xerox machine and Hey, you know, yep, here's the schedule. Thanks for your money, right? I put no thought into this and no interpretation. Like, but I mean, it really, it's it's absurd to me that anybody would even look at that and say, oh yeah, I, I want this, this is valuable. It's also borderline 
you know, arguably unethical, but I guess the market will bear what the market will bear uh, on the part of that uh, quote unquote coach uh, providing that. Um, but like fifth graders, <laughs> fifth graders do the mile run in gym class. Does the fastest finisher have special knowledge? Like, I think it'd be easier to recognize no. But if we apply the system of symbolic meaning, then we ascribe those individuals to have value. Um, and their peers might actually assume that they know things and like, well, they run fast, so what do they know? And there's a certain kind of logic to that. But, you know, and you can go and you can talk to those people. It's possible they might know something. They must be doing something that's good, right? You know, even if all it's doing is just running the mile fast, they're running the mile fast. So at the very least, say, well, what's happening physically for this person versus the fifth graders, you know, finishing three or four minutes behind? What's different? That could be informative. But that person's performance doesn't actually mean they have knowledge that can be expressed. Um, But performance becomes a symbol of knowledge. I think the symbol of knowledge should be evidence. In other words, like knowledge is sort of non-symbolic. Right. And I think we need to validate the symbols. Um, You know, the high performer has the knowledge of their own experience and they can describe that experience. But then this idea of, okay, well, we need to recreate that is the mistake. And that's like looking for magic. Like, oh, let me reenact these rituals and then I too will turn lead into gold. You know, um, and, and I just think that that it's not, it doesn't work that way. The evidence doesn't support that practice. And it's long been the case of studying. You know, the the things that elite athletes do and, you know, I, I have a book uh, like Running with the Champions or Run Like the Champions and it just takes a bunch of different American runners from the last 70 years and it's like this is their best, their favorite workout <laughs> and it's basically this idea of like here's each of these people, here's their little magic ritual to turn lead into gold and the interesting thing with athletics is they are performing at this high level and at some point in their life they were probably not that good. Um, but, you know, it's just not really something that, um, should be given that much meaning. Like the question is like with the, the example of my brother's, uh, friend who once upon a time ran 214 in the marathon. Well, I, I used to do four times a mile on 445. There's actually, I know a lot of guys who could do four times a mile on 445 with very little recovery and they couldn't run a 214 marathon. Sometimes they couldn't even, they couldn't even run 445 pace for 8k cross country. Okay, so, you know, when we're looking at this stuff, we're looking in the wrong places. And, you know, I won't deny that there's some level of, you know, um, you know, normative envy of that. You know, when I was racing that gravel race I mentioned, you know, last 600 meters of the race, you know, on this last little uphill, um, you know, and I'm like 190 something pounds right now. And guy comes up next to me, 50 pounds less than me. And he looks at me and he goes, hey, are, are you just riding it in? And I was like, WTF, I'm riding <laughs> as fast as I can without my entire leg seizing up. And yeah, something, and then he just sort of disappeared <laughs> over the top of the hill. Um, and it was like, well, yeah, naturally here, I, I wish I could go faster. I think that's normal. But I don't like, oh, I, I'm not like, oh, I need to go up to that guy. And how do you get so fast up the hill? It's like, well, you know, he weighs 50 pounds less than me. Uh, unless I can eliminate that weight difference, I can't actually reach a conclusion if he's doing, if he's actually any fitter than I am, right? He's performing better than I am, not by much in this instance, but like, you know, right? How do we think about this stuff? I think resisting this sort of, the symbolic gravity 
Um, the ritual gravity is really important. And when we go back to um, the zones that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, well, what's the maximum attainable benefit for zones? So then if you add in, you say, well, how much time can you really spend in these zones over an actual training period? Well, if you put these on, you know, attainable benefit scale, um, VO2 max is close to zero. Threshold is like maybe three. Um, active recovery is maybe 10. Uh, sweet spot is like 22. Tempo is like 30. And aerobic capacity is almost 50. Okay, and when we look at this stuff, we now realize that VO2 max, which in the model of value per minute, looks incredible, almost magically different because everything else was basically close to zero. And then VO2 max is incredible. And we would look at this differently. And I would say correctly. And we ask, well, what's the value of this thing, given the fact that training is something that's done over time, and the way we use time to practice as a key strategy. Now we see that the symbolic value of VO2 max isn't backed up by substantive value. And you know, so then this leads to the question of like, are rituals just bad? And I think we want to recognize that sport is already a ritual. And so to suggest that rituals are bad in sport would be super hypocritical. And I don't think ritual is bad. And I say that I have two distinctions to make here or two dynamics. Um, first is that, you know, make ritual training practices where the individual experiences a sense of change in status through symbolic practice or achievement that's tied to actually substantive practices. So like running 100 miles a week or 160 kilometers a week, um, you know, means different things to different people in terms of what they execute. But it means a same thing to people in terms of symbolic value. And, you know, I used to operate on this assumption too of like, well, I run 70 miles a week this year and then I'll run 80 and then I'll run 90 and then my senior year in college will be running 100 and then everything will be sunshine, lollipops, rainbows and gumdrops. And that didn't happen. You know, I just sort of was exhausted trying to run, you know, 75, 80, 85 sometimes miles a week and I got nothing out of it. Um, so that 100 miles a week, you know, you know, can be valuable or unvaluable in terms of practice, but it always has that same symbolic value. And do you want to be perceived as the person who does the crazy training or do you want to enjoy exercise? And by that, we mean feel good in exercise, but also improve as a consequence of your approach to exercise and training. Um, so I'm suggesting that the symbol and the rite of passage is actually enhanced by the training uh, being designed in the most effective way possible. And it doesn't have to be like this ritual of, of, you know, VO2 max pain and hitting the wall and going to the well. Um, I just think there's too much traditional belief, um, you know, in that having value. And I, I think the value there is non-existent. You know, that's what happens in races. And look at how absolutely wrecked you are after races. It takes quite a while to recover from that. I've done, you know, that uh, gravel race was four hours. I just decided I'm doing nothing for two days. Um, and it doesn't really fit with my sense of, you know, what I want to, you know, practice and project about myself through my exercise habits, but that's a system of symbolic meaning. And it sometimes is in conflict with what's actually valuable. So, 
you know, second, I think it's important to recognize that the rights of rites of passage of adversity are the competitions. And by that same token, if you have a training session that is a rite of passage of adversity, just because because you call it training doesn't change the fact that it's really just a competition. And if you wouldn't do a competition at that point in time, then why would you mask a competition a, as a constructive training practice? It doesn't make sense. Um, because when you don't hold back, that has a hugely different impact in terms of fatigue. And no matter what you label, like symbols don't, you know, get over that, right? It's like in the same way that firewalking at the end of the day isn't a medical intervention. And no matter how much socially constructed value there is there, um, you know, when you go to your next race, that that value isn't going to do you any good. And you're going to hit the wall when you're going to hit the wall based on your level of physical preparedness. And, you know, the goal here hasn't been to question rites of passage and the way we construct social transformation and culture in general. Instead, what we're trying to do, what we've tried to do is ask whether our belief in symbolic systems of meaning um, in training culture is limiting our ability to be effective. Because if we can't get past or challenge the symbol's meaning, then that's a problem. And the problem then really is, has to be in, in how we think and a failure to think. And we don't want to let the symbols and the rituals do the thinking for us. We do need to think deeply about what's going on because this need to keep everything simple and you know have faith and believe in the process is causing the process to be something that isn't worth believing in. Ultimately, though, why does it matter even to be able to do the right training because I understand that some people think that this stuff doesn't matter or that you know I'm making um, Mount Everest out of an anthill and it just shouldn't be that complicated etc and like it's a, like I'm betraying some essential thing violating some taboo by making it complicated but I don't think that thinking and discussing things um, in depth and deep diving on things is should be problematic. Um, but I know that that's a view, that sports is supposed to be anti-intellectual. You're not supposed to think. You're just supposed to act and do and you know demonstrate that that's the virtue. Um, but I think that's true in the same way that the socioeconomically affluent have limited sympathy. Um, part of that research I referenced on how Americans don't understand the level of economic inequality in our society, the other aspect of that is that people don't really want the society to be that equal. Well, you know, you have to wonder how much of that is because enough people being surveyed are comfortable with their status and a equalizing of status would cause a loss in their status. So if you bring up the level of more people in competitions and racing, that is going to depreciate the value of the people who are currently special and awesome. And racing being a competitive sport, you know, our ability to perform is ultimately relative to other people. So I think that people who um, don't understand um, and, and are scornful of the sort of desire to think about this stuff in these dynamic ways, I think probably are limited in their sympathy and they may come, not all the time, but sometimes may come from a situation in which exercise and performance and racing and training has always been something that to them has been simple because they have feel that they've gotten out what they've expected based on what they've put in. But I know that for most people, that's not actually the case. And if we don't make it like 
reasonable to talk about that, then we can't really do anything differently in those systems of meaning um, actually make a lot of our efforts meaningless and they just sort of prop up, um, you know, hierarchy of achievers versus non-achievers. And, you know, I think certainly in Western culture, we have high expectations for our leisure time, but we have little to no sympathy (laughs) for other people within our culture of their expectations of leisure time. So I think that's another weird dynamic to that attitude. And I would point out in response to that, it's not healthy for a society to see people struggle to find a sense of identity, to self-actualize, to find belonging. And the question of what you're going to be when you want to grow up is ultimately, I want to be somebody who doesn't have to go to work (laughs) for a lot of us is, is going to be the answer to that. And, you know, lower societal health negatively impacts all of us, regardless of our contextual affluence and, you know, lack of understanding of best training practices and, you know, commitment to ritual tradition uh, limits all of us. And if you have limited or no empathy for this, then I suppose we might have to agree to disagree. But I I would ask you to at least consider how much would society improve if everybody could find a positive and effective approach to physical fitness? What would healthier, happier people do? in society that might be different from the way people function and interact now. And if so, maybe we do need uh, to reduce the kind of ritual obstacles that we use to pursue this stuff. And I think ideas like the 100 mile week at one point was a part of like innovation and the right process of thinking. And these things get turned into ritual practice. You know, VO2 max uh, you know, whatever the value may have been there, I think has been greatly depreciated. Um, and it becomes this system of intensity, right? And by the way, I'm not saying VO2 max needs to be rehabilitated, but even things like that, which I sort of don't agree with, I also am willing to recognize that the ritualistic nature of this stuff has made it even less likely that these things are going to be given the value they should be ascribing Um, They should actually maybe have, although VO2 max is stupid, Um, just to be clear. So when we do this stuff, right, and we reduce these obstacles, then we need to also reduce reading too much into the false positives of these sessions. We need to look for that gorilla in the room. And if we perpetuate an interpretive structure of athletics, um, then... I think that we're going to find that there's more success and that we're going to be better at creating a better experience and we're going to see better trends towards improvement. Thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found this interesting. Um, If you're enjoying the podcast, you can check us out on Instagram at Black Cats Run. Feel free to send us a message. We're available for training consultation um, and, you know, coaching at cost. Um, if that's something you're interested in, we'll catch you next time.